0: Uh, before uh, having kids, uh, one of the things Gabby and I loved to do was go hiking. Hopefully we can get back into it. It's a bit trickier with uh, kids in tow. But uh, the moment I particularly loved about hiking, which is perhaps a little bit ironic. I did like other things. But the, the moment I really loved was the moment at the end of each day uh, when you're finally making camp. You know, So you're you finally getting to the end of the day's walking. Uh, this is a ones and all. You're getting to the end of days walking. Uh, You can perhaps picture the scene. You've got a heavy pack on. Your your feet are a little bit sore, maybe a few blisters. Your mouth's a little bit dry. Your your, your stomach's a little bit hungry. And you just see the camp on the horizon. And you just feel this wave of kind of restfulness comes over the top of you. The pack comes off. The boots come off. The tent goes up. You you get a bit of food going on the stove. uh, You get some water from the the whatever water source is there, uh, and it's just incredibly restful because the hard journey of the day is finished, and you've reached a place of rest. It's a wonderful feeling—a place of real comfort, a place of safety, a place of blessing and provision, a place of rest. And of course, some of you aren't really into hiking, uh, but you're perhaps on some other hard and arduous journey in life. Uh, some of you are maybe on the university journey. You know, it's full of essays and assignments and deadlines and projects and all that sort of thing, uh, and you just long for the rest that's going to happen when you finally graduate. You know, It's just going to be so incredibly restful. Uh, some of you are on the journey of looking for a job. It just feels like one interview or resume or cover letter after another, a constant string of disappointments, uh, and you long for that rest when you, when you finally get a call and say, yes, you got the job this time. Uh, some of you perhaps are on a journey in a particular hobby or, or sporting pursuits. You don't want to get a new personal best or you want to uh, win this competition or, or get to this particular level. Life is all about hard journeys, arduous journeys in many ways, uh, towards a place of rest, uh, a place uh, of deep comfort and security, uh, a place of blessing and provision. Uh, And that's what Ruth chapter 3 is about. Ruth chapter 3 is about a journey to finding rest, the the journey of Naomi and Ruth to finding rest. Uh, And I say that because if you look at the passage, if you've got it open in front of you, Uh, If you look at the start and end of the passage, uh, Ruth chapter 3 is really bookended by this idea of rest. If you you look in verse 1 there, uh, it says, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you, literally a a place of rest for you, where you will be well provided for. That's verse 1. And then right at the end of the passage, uh, Naomi again says to Ruth, Wait, my daughter, uh, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest a different word, but, but exactly the same idea. The man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So you see, Ruth chapter 3 uh, is about a journey to finding rest. And you can see in the outline, I've summarised the whole chapter under four key words. Uh, you might quibble about the words, but I reckon these are useful words. Uh, you can see verse 1 uh, is about the, this kind of a quest for seeking rest. Uh, verses 2 to 8 is the plan to finding rest. Uh, verses 9 to 13, we've got this kind of whispered conversation between Ruth and Boaz at the, at the threshing floor. Uh, and then in verses 14 to 18, we've got these great promises of rest from Boaz. So let's look at this, uh, verse 1. Uh, Naomi seeking rest for Ruth. I'll look at, that at the start of verse 1. It says, One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her. That's an interesting detail. One day, that's a little bit vague. Exactly when is this happening? Uh, But it's pretty clear from verse 2 that several weeks have actually passed between the end of Ruth chapter 2 and the start of Ruth chapter 3. Why do I say that? It's because in verse 2 it tells us that we're up to the process of winnowing the barley. Uh, It took several weeks for the barley to be cut, for the barley to be gathered, uh, and now it's finally being winnowed. Remember in chapter 2, the the cutting and gathering was happening, and Ruth was going along, gleaning behind. Uh, And now we're up to the winnowing. So actually, uh, probably uh, six or seven weeks has elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3. Why is that important? Well, it's important to notice, but because, remember in chapter 2, Dan uh, unpacked that last week, Uh, In chapter 2, Boaz was really very impressed with Ruth, wasn't he? A fine woman, Ruth, he thought. Uh, But the reality is that uh, the relationship between Ruth and Boaz hasn't progressed in that six or seven week period. And of course, Naomi really wants their relationship to progress, doesn't she? You remember chapter 2, verse 20, if you cast your eyes back, if you've got a Bible... Uh, but Naomi's seen a real opportunity with Boaz because Boaz is one of our guardian redeemers, she said there in chapter 2, verse 20. Guardian redeemer. Oh, what's this guardian redeemer idea? Uh, you can uh, chase it up in uh, places like Leviticus chapter 25 from verse 25. But the basic idea of a guardian redeemer, it's a, a legal term uh, under the law of the Israelites uh, where... <coughs> A close relative had an obligation uh, to redeem a relative who was in extreme poverty. And they typically would redeem them by buying uh, back their lands. Uh, it comes from the idea, you know, Israel's been set free from slavery in Egypt, uh, and so they're not to re-enter slavery. Uh, and so a close relative would buy back their land so they didn't have to become slaves, you see. Uh, all that's unpacked in Leviticus chapter 25. And Naomi and Ruth, who are incredibly poor, see this great hope with Boaz. Boaz, who is one of their guardian redeemers. But between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, Boaz hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything. Why, why is that the case? Well, we really don't know. The, the, the details aren't here, are they? You know, perhaps, uh, perhaps Boaz is aware that, that Ruth is grieving the loss of her previous husband. He doesn't want to come on too strong, you know, doesn't want to appear callous. Uh, Maybe Naomi's land hasn't even been put on the market yet, you know, like he's not aware that there's an option there to buy back the land. Uh, We do know from today's passage, down in verse 11, uh, Boaz does know that there's a closer guardian redeemer, someone who's ahead of him in the queue, as it were. For whatever reason, Boaz hasn't done anything. And so at the start of chapter 3, Naomi decides to take some action herself. And you can imagine this conversation, it's a, a tough conversation. Uh, imagine trying to have a conversation with your daughter-in-law, uh, who's perhaps still grieving the loss of her previous husband, uh, and saying, look, maybe it's time to, to, you know, move on, to start looking for other options. Naomi says to Ruth there, my daughter... It's quite a sensitive, kind of uh, affectionate way to approach it. And in the rest of verse 1, in our translation, there's a statement there, isn't it? I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Actually, other translations, I think it's probably a little bit better. It's actually a question, right? Naomi's really saying, uh, should I not find a home for you or or seek a place of rest for you uh, that it might go well with you? Right now he's asking a question of Ruth. Isn't this something that I should do for you? Uh, and there's really two parts to our question. Isn't The first part uh, is, should I not find a home for you, Ruth? Right, uh, a place of rest. Uh, it's understandable the NIV goes with home here, you know, because for a woman in this culture, uh, it was unrealistic uh, for a woman to really find a place of rest uh, unless she had the comfort and security and protection of being in the home of a loving husband. Right, these days, you might just say, "Well, go out on your own and get some welfare payments," and you know, like. But for, but in this culture, this was the way it had to go. You had to find a husband and a home if you wanted to be safe and secure and be provided for. And this is something Naomi prayed for back in chapter one. Do you remember this? Uh, not long after these uh, uh, Ruth and Orpah's husbands died. Uh, Naomi prayed, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. That was Naomi's prayer. And now here at the start of chapter three, Naomi's going to become the answer to her own prayer. Uh, it's interesting. That, that often happens in life. Perhaps the Lord might use us. Uh, I, I bet, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I first knew um, Paul and Mel, they were probably praying that people would take the gospel to the nations. And at some point God said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you should do that. Gabby you know, and I were praying, someone should plant a church in the inner north. So eventually God said, maybe you should do that. You yeah, So be careful what you pray. Now he prays and, then, and God says, you better sort that out. Anyway, so that's, what, that's the first thing. She prays for a home, a place of rest. Uh, and and the, the second part of it is that it might go well for you. She, she wants to secure uh, Ruth's future. She knows that if she can find a husband for Ruth uh, and a home for Ruth, things will go well. Things will go well uh, for two principal reasons. Uh, the first is that having a husband at a home uh, will remove Ruth's shame in this culture. Or it's a very shameful thing to be a widow and to not have children. Those are incredibly shameful things in this particular culture. Uh, and so that way, that, all that disgrace and shame would be lifted from her. She'd be in this position of honour. Uh, it would also remove her poverty. Right? Someone would be able to provide for all her needs and the needs of their family. Uh, so Naomi is seeking a place of rest for Ruth. But what's the plan? That's verses 2 to 8. You see there are the, in verses 2 to 5, Naomi's got the plan sorted out, she's devised a plan. And then in verses 6 to 8, Ruth executes the plan. Uh, Have a look in verse Uh, 2. Naomi says to Ruth, well, you know, he's a prospect, Boaz. Now Boaz, uh, with whose women uh, you have worked, is a relative of ours. Relative of ours. That's interesting, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 20, uh, he's a guardian redeemer. He's going to save us. He's going to redeem us, full of hope. Well, now, he's a relative of ours. You see, Naomi was full of hope that Boaz was going to act as a guardian redeemer for their whole family. But now that Boaz hasn't acted on that, she's lost hope. But she still thinks, you know, Boaz is a good guy. He's a good prospect for Ruth. At least he can marry Ruth and secure her future. I think that's what's happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, Naomi says to Ruth, tonight he'll be winnowing barley uh, at the threshing floor. Right, chapter 1, verse 22, uh, Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2, the, bar- uh, the barley's been cut and gathered together. Uh, now we're winnowing the barley at the threshing floor. And this is a, a roughly how it would have worked. I don't know the specific details of Bethlehem, but typically the, the threshing floor would be on a, a kind of hilltop outside the village. Uh, Because that's where uh, there were particularly good winds kind of coming up the hill. Uh, And what would happen, you know, the the people would have, the winnowers would have their winnowing forks and there'd be a big stack of barley and they'd pick up and they'd throw it up into the air, into the wind. The heavy kernels of barley would fall to the ground and the light chaff would be blown away in the wind. And all this is happening up at the threshing floor. And now he says to to Ruth, Boaz is going to be up there tonight. Don't know, maybe he's working at night just because there's lots of work to get done. It's a busy time of year. Uh, perhaps the winds are better. Whatever it is, Boaz is going to be up there tonight going about this winnowing. Uh, and so she says, verse 3, you better get yourself cleaned up. You know, make yourself presentable. Remember Ruth's a poor person. Chapter 2, she's out in the hot sun all day. She's you know, busy, gleaning, working hard from dawn to dusk. Uh, so Naomi says, clean yourself up. First, have a wash. Well, that's a good bit of advice. If you uh, plan on proposing tonight, if you haven't had a shower, maybe put it off. You know, have a wash. You know, uh, put some perfume on. I remember, like a, like a, gleaning, I imagine was pretty hot and stinky work. So you know, uh, the, the tip here is that, uh, this is probably some sort of olive oil that's perfumed. Uh, the word here is literally anoint yourself, uh, so now says, put some, uh, anoint yourself with some perfumed olive oil. And then our translation says, put your best clothes on. a little bit misleading, I think, best clothes. It really just means put on your cloak. It's the word for like an outer garment, a coat. I reckon the best clothes things, uh, it's probably more driven by a particular interpretation of this scene that we're about to look at, uh, which is that Naomi's, uh, this is the interpretation that they're giving, uh, that Naomi is telling Ruth to get yourself dressed up in, in a pretty seductive get-up, so that you can seduce Boaz down at the threshing floor. But well, I don't think that's what's happening at all. Other people might. But I think actually Naomi's just saying, get yourself cleaned up, make yourself presentable. And the word here just means cloak. Right? Exodus uh, 22, uh, verses 26 and 27, I think pretty instructive here. Uh, let me read those. Exodus 22, from verse 26. Uh, if you take your neighbour's cloak, same word, take your neighbour's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Why? Why get it back to them by sunset? Because, verse 27, that cloak is the only covering your neighbour has. What else can they sleep in? I think this is what's going on here. You see, Ruth is very poor. Ruth and Naomi together. There's no like She's not going up to the threshing floor with her kind of minus five degrees sleeping bag. Like... <laughs> Mary's saying to Ruth, you're going to be up at the threshing floor all night, it's going to get cold, make sure you take your cloak to stay warm. That's her priority here, it's warmth, not seduction. Go to the threshing floor, she says, Uh, Boaz is there with his workers, they're sleeping there overnight, presumably to protect the grain. Uh, Wait until he's finished eating and drinking. Another piece of sage advice Whatever you think about Naomi, I think she's got some wise advice here, Uh, in that sometimes, or look in verse 7, what happens after Boaz has uh, finished eating and drinking? He's in good spirits, (laughs) verse 7. You know, sometimes at the end of a hard, long day's work, it's not the best time for a serious conversation. You know, like you you just need some food in your stomach, you need to have a drink because you're a bit hangry, and someone comes at you with this kind of life-changing proposal, you're not likely to take it well. Uh, And so Naomi's saying to Ruth, wait until he's had something to eat and drink so the whole plan doesn't kind of go belly up because he's tired and hungry, you see. He's got to be in good spirits. Verse 4. Note where he's sleeping Again, you know, it'd be easy to skip over that. But remember last week. Right? If you flick back to chapter 2, verse 9, Ruth's working in Boaz's field. What does Boaz has to say to his workers? I've told my workers not to lay a hand on you. Remember, the book of Ruth's happening in the, in the time of the judges. It's a pretty chaotic and lawless time. Uh, so there's a real concern that Ruth might be assaulted in the field, that someone might grab her. And so he says to Ruth, when you go up to the threshing floor, make sure you don't wake up the wrong man. And you've got a note where Boaz is lying. We've got confidence in his character, but not so much in all the other blokes that are up there. And then there's the fun phrase, isn't it? Then go and uncover his feet uncover his feet if you've been in, uh, in gospel communities you may have already had fun with this phrase you know what does it mean so a lot of people I uh, think maybe it's a euphemism for uh, kind of uncovering his nakedness that's an expression in other parts of the Bible. Uh, this goes along the line of that seduction thing. You know, now he's a, kind of in, all glammed up uh, Ruth's all glammed up you know and she kind of goes up and, and somehow exposes him and says, hey you know let's get it on kind of thing that, that's, the, that's the I don't think that's what's happening here at all. It's not a kind of sexual proposition moment. In part, because if you look at verses 10 and 11, Boaz blesses Ruth, or says, May the Lord bless you for what you've done. And then he declares her to be a woman of noble character. Now, I don't know about you, but if you read the book of Ruth, I just don't think that's something Boaz would say if Ruth's rocked up at the threshing floor to proposition You know, like, he's not going to be impressed by that. He's not going to say, oh, you're such a noble woman coming up here to seduce me. No, that's not how he rolls. And I don't think Ruth would have bought into that plan either. I think all that's going on here is uncover his feet means literally uncover his feet. Remember, Ruth had to have her cloak because it's going to be cold. What's being said here is take off the the, uh, the blankets of the lower half of Boaz's legs so that when the temperature drops at some point during the night, he's kind of startled awake by the cold, uh, and he finds you there, Ruth there. So that's the plan. And it doesn't have to be said that it's a very odd plan. <laughs> like, it's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Uh, you could uh, you could really look at it in two different ways. On the one hand, you could view it as a very dangerous and, and almost faithless plan. Uh, Ruth is incredibly vulnerable up at the threshing floor. You know, I've already seen that. You know, she, she could uh, have someone lay a hand on her. I think this is a plan that could easily be misinterpreted. You know, In and around the, the, the threshing floor, it wasn't uncommon at all for actual prostitutes to come up and, and proposition the men who were sleeping up at the threshing floor. So this is a plan that could very easily backfire. You do have to ask, is Naomi thinking clearly or in a very godly way where she proposes this plan? You could view it as a dangerous and faithless plan or you could view it as a risky but faith-filled plan. Yes, it's risky, but Naomi has the ultimate confidence in Boaz and his character and the ultimate confidence in the Lord. Yes, it's risky, but the Lord will watch over these things and make sure things turn out for the best. Whatever way you read it, that, that is the plan. And so in verses 6 to 8, Ruth executes the plan exactly. You can read it there. Goes to the threshing floor, waits until Boaz has finished eating and drinking, notes where he's lying down, approaches quietly, uncovers his feet, lays down and waits for him to wake up. Uh, And in verse 8, Boaz does wake up. I kind of love verse 8. I can just picture myself, you know. Like if, you know at night if your blankets have uh, slipped off and you feel a bit cold and you're sort of like groping around, trying to find the blanket to pull it up to warm up again. And Boaz is doing that. And he's like, there's a woman at the end of, You know, there's a woman lying down at my feet. What's she doing there? That, that's the scene here, isn't it? And so verse 9, he, he says, who are you? Right, so I've said this is whispering. Because, you know, the other people are there. Who are you? He says, I'm your servant, Ruth. And then in the second half of verse 9, you know, despite the fact... That Ruth knows that she's Boaz's servant. And despite the fact, you know, remember Naomi said to Ruth, uh, just wait until Boaz wakes up and he'll tell you what to do. Well, Ruth Ruth doesn't want to borrow that, does she? Like, she takes the initiative here. Ruth speaks to Boaz saying, Spread the corner of your garment over me. I literally spread, spread the wing of your, of your garment. So I spread your wing over me. Which is significant, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 12. We heard about this last week. That, that Boaz commended Ruth because she'd taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. We talked about that last week. It's a picture of love, a picture of intimacy and protection and comfort and security. And what's, what's it here? It's a picture of marriage. It's a picture of marriage. So what's happening here after this sentence is that Ruth has done what Naomi asked her to do. Ruth has proposed marriage to Boaz. She's looking for a husband so she can find a home and find a place of rest, that things might go well for her. That's all Naomi expected Ruth to do. But Naomi goes in for more. Why doesn't she? She says, uh, Ruth goes in for more, rather, right? She says, Since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Ruth could have secured rest for herself simply by marrying Boaz, but she also wants to secure rest for Naomi. She asked Boaz to act as their guardian redeemer, which is why in verse 10, Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, uh, whether rich or poor. You see what Boaz understands, right? It's hard for us to kind of read between the lines of what's going on here, but Boaz knows uh, that if Ruth was only interested in kind of securing her own rest, she could have married any man, and probably a younger man who could provide for her for longer. If it was all about her, she could have picked someone else. She could have even just picked Boaz, and, and they could have just got married, and it would have all been sorted for Ruth. But in her incredible kindness, this kindness, which is greater than the kindness she'd already shown to Naomi, in this kindness, she asked Boaz not just to marry her, but to act as the guardian redeemer of their whole family, to buy Elimelech's land, Naomi's deceased husband's land, and preserve Elimelech's family line, which is what we'll talk about, Adam will talk about that more next week in Ruth chapter 4. This is incredibly bold of Ruth, isn't it? you can see there's a real kind of flipping on his head, a real role reversal here. You know, Ruth the servant uh, kind of speaking boldly to her master. A Moabite speaking to an Israelite. A woman directing a man. That wasn't on. Uh, Let alone a poor woman directing a rich man. And so Ruth must have been thinking, how's all this going to work out? Boaz's initial response is quite positive. And in verse 11, he reassures Ruth again. Don't be afraid, he says. I'll, I'll do what you have asked. I notice that again, you know. Now he says to Ruth, you, you do what Boaz asks. He'll tell you what to do. I don't know, Boaz is like, I'll do what Ruth asks. Yeah? And he says, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Wonderful. In just a couple of months, Ruth has won over the whole uh, village of Bethlehem because everyone's seen just how hardworking she is, how loyal she is to Naomi, uh, how faithful she is. They can see that she's a woman of noble character. That's the same word that described Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, Boaz was described as a man of standing. This is woman of standing. We're supposed to read it and think these two are perfect for one another. But, verse 12, there's a spanner in the works. Boaz says, yes, uh, yes, I am a guardian redeemer. I'd love to act as a guardian redeemer. But there's this other guy who's closer. He really has dibs on this action here. So at the end of verse 12, we're supposed to think, is the whole plan going to fail? Is the whole plan going to fail? Boaz doesn't think so. Verse 13, he says to Ruth, stay here for the night and we'll sort it out in the morning. No no, no time to waste, Boaz is saying. Very busy time of year, winnowing, all that barley. But Boaz says, no, this is so important. We've got to sort it out first thing. In the morning, I'm going into town. We'll sort it out. And then he makes that, that solemn promise, doesn't he? "As Surely as the Lord lives, I will do this. And our people have heard. Like we hear all sorts of promises in life. We know that a promise is only worth anything according to the character of the person making it, isn't it? But from what we know about Boaz, isn't it true that Ruth can be fairly confident that Boaz will do everything in his power to be faithful to this promise? And we see that promise kind of unpacked all the more in the morning in verse fourteen. I don't know how much sleep they would have got up at the threshing floor. You know, a strange conversation to have in the middle of the night. But they do seem to get up early before anyone else. And then Boaz, I mean, I heard some of you laughing when the Bible reading was read. You know, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Now, it feels maybe a little bit like this is a boys club or something. But I don't think that's the case, right? Remember, this is a place where um, prostitutes frequented. And we've read the book of Ruth. And we know that Boaz is a man of noble character and Ruth is a woman of noble character. They've got a great reputation. So wouldn't it be unfortunate if there was a misunderstanding and their reputations were sullied by this, just through misinterpretation? And so Boaz says to Ruth, with that in mind, you better just get going so that people can't join the dots in the way that they choose. And if it does seem a bit cold-hearted, make sure you remember verse 15. Uh, where he pours six measures of barley into her shawl uh, before she heads off. What's that that about? There's six measures of barley? I think it's an outward physical pledge of his promise. It's like a down payment of everything that's to come, a little taste of everything that's going to happen when he finally does redeem them, when he marries Ruth, when he redeems the whole family. A pledge of his promise. Uh, So Ruth goes back to Naomi. You can imagine Naomi didn't have much sleep either, tossing and turning, wondering how things are going up at the threshing floor. Uh, And so, you know, Ruth arrives and there's, you know, how did it go with Boaz? Verse 17, uh, Ruth gives the report. And look, she says, uh, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Right, and there's this kind of sense here is that It wouldn't be right for you to go back to Naomi empty. It's it's just empty, not empty-handed. It wouldn't be right for you to go back to Naomi empty. Why is that? It wouldn't be right because of his promise. His promise to redeem Naomi and her family and take them from emptiness to fullness. So it just wouldn't be fitting for her to go back empty in light of his promise. Uh, and this wonderful kind of loop from chapter 1, verse 21. You remember, Naomi said when she returned to Bethlehem, she said, I went away full, but I've come back empty. And Boaz is saying, through, through my redemption, that's all going to change. I'm going to take you from emptiness to fullness. So Naomi hears that promise. She, she sees that the pledge of the, the six measures of barley and in verse 18, she says to Ruth, uh, Wait. oh, just wait. They sort of they're like rest easy. Sit down. Why? Because the man will not rest. Right? Boaz isn't going to be at peace, she's saying, until the matter is settled, until it's done, it's finished. It's been dealt with. So Ruth chapter 3 is about a journey to, to finding rest. And broadly, we see in this chapter... That uh, Ruth and Naomi find rest both by seeking it and receiving it. And they find rest first by seeking it uh, and second by receiving it. Because they do actively seek rest, don't they? They see an opportunity, they make a plan, they execute the plan, they go about seeking rest. Just as last week, Ruth sought favour. Grace. Right, Ruth did that by herself. This week Naomi's kind of you know, come out of her bitterness and hopelessness and she's on board as well. We're seeking rest together. They actively seek rest. But in verse 18, uh, it's, if, it's as if Naomi's saying to Ruth, you've got to stop actively seeking rest and start kind of passively receiving rest. And you have to wait. You have to trust that Boaz will keep his promise of providing rest. And in the big picture of Ruth, uh, trusting Boaz's promise that that he's going to provide redemption that leads to rest uh, is really akin to trusting the Lord's promise uh, that he'll provide redemption that leads to rest. Because all through Ruth, it's been clear that the Lord is at work behind the scenes for the good of both Naomi and Ruth and all of his people. If you want to flick back to chapter 1, but you'll see, I'll I'll just quote some verses. Chapter 1, verse 6, and Naomi hears good news Of what the Lord has done. So they decide to go back to Bethlehem. Chapter 1, verse 16, Ruth commits herself to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi acknowledges that as much as she came back to Bethlehem, it was the Lord who brought her back. Chapter 2 verse 3. Uh, it's the Lord who brings Ruth to Boaz's field. Right? Of all the fields she could have been brought to, she uh, the Lord brings Ruth to the field of someone who could actually redeem them and provide rest. Chapter two, verse twenty. It's under the law that the Lord God of Israel provided that Boaz is a guardian redeemer of this family. God has made provision for this, uh, and so in chapter three, verse eighteen, what we're hearing is that these uh, these two women are to receive rest by trusting that Boaz, the, the redeemer that the Lord has provided, will keep His promise of providing redemption that leads to rest. You see that they're trusting in the redeemer that the Lord has provided that he will redeem them and provide rest. And that's important to get because that's exactly the same for us. It's the same for us in that we can find rest uh, by seeking rest, right? seeking rest from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus uh, who, as it were, is like the ultimate Boaz, the ultimate redeemer that our Lord has provided. We're, We're to seek rest. Matthew 7, uh, verse 7, Christ urges us to seek. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, some of you are like, oh, but in our sin, in our sin, no one seeks after God. I know that. But some of you here, the Lord uh, is at work in your hearts. By his grace, he's giving you a desire to seek after Christ. And so seek him. Seek Christ. Read the word. Pray. Ask questions. Join a gospel community. Come along to church. Not just every now and again, but every week. Seek after Christ. But at some point, you you have to uh, kind of get to the end of yourself. That's chapter 3, verse 18. Stop actively seeking rest and start passively receiving rest. Like Naomi and Ruth had to trust in Boaz, that that he would redeem them and provide rest. We have to trust Christ's promise that he will redeem us uh, and that redemption will lead to rest. And Christ does promise rest. Matthew 11, uh, verse 27, Christ promises, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest. this rest really has two parts. First, well, it's spiritual rest. The spiritual rest that Christ secures for us when he dies in our place on the cross, redeeming us from our sins. I'll explain what that means. You you can Google this later on, all right? But it's pretty well attested that the last words of Buddha, a lot of people in this area, if you're going to be spiritual at all, I kind of like Buddhism. Let me tell you why I don't like Buddhism. The last words of Buddha were strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. No rest. I prefer the last words of Jesus. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. It's finished. Right, this is the parallel to, to Ruth chapter three, verse eighteen. Remember, Naomi said uh, to Ruth, Boaz the Redeemer, will not rest until he's redeemed you from your physical poverty. He redeemed us, you said. And our Lord Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, did not rest until he redeemed us, not from physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. Because each of us, we are blessed are the poor in spirit. Each of us come before God, we're spiritually poor. Uh, in our sins we've accumulated a massive debt, a spiritual debt. Uh, and yet in Christ's death on the cross, he pays that debt in full. It is finished. The matter is settled. It's like if you got a, you had an outstanding debt, you know maybe it's your hex debt or some other debt, and then you just get a notice in the mail that says paid in full. Like who paid that? It wasn't me. That's what happens spiritually. It is finished. The matter is dealt with. It's done. It's paid through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And so we receive rest by trusting that, that Christ, the ultimate redeemer our Lord has provided, has secured our spiritual rest by paying the debt for all our sins on the cross. And the second, we receive rest by trusting that Christ will, will he one day provide us with complete rest. Complete rest when He redeems us not not just from our sins, but from this world that is broken and messed up by sin. You can read it in the second half of Romans eight. We look forward to the full redemption of our bodies. It's the picture in Revelation chapter 21, it's a picture of complete rest. Complete rest, physical rest. No more pain, uh, no more injuries, no more vision loss. Complete rest, complete emotional rest. And no more tears. You know the the picture in Revelation 21? No no more tears because we've been brought so close to our Lord that He's wiping away the tears. (coughs) Wiping them away. That's a a picture of intimacy, isn't it? Like not many other people wipe away the tears of my children. But I do, because there's a special kind of intimacy there. That's that's a picture. No no complete emotional rest, no more tears. Relational rest, no more conflict or strife or tension or war. Complete relational rest, complete spiritual rest. No evil, uh, no struggle with sin at all. It's a wonderful picture of complete rest. And that's what our Lord Jesus has promised us. So all of us are somewhere on this journey to finding rest. Some of you here perhaps, and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian. Let me urge you today to receive rest by by trusting in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust that in his death on the cross, he's paid off the debt for all your sins, So there's no more striving required. You don't have to be kind of burdened by that debt as if you have to work it off, you have to pay it off. No, no, he paid it all. It is finished. The matter is settled, Ruth 3, 18. It's done, it's dealt with. Uh, Some of you are here, you're you're Christians, you've already uh, believed that, you've received that spiritual rest, you know what it is to to rest in Christ and his death on the cross. Uh, Let me urge you to trust Christ's promise that one day he'll fully redeem you and bring you into a place of complete rest. Trust that promise. Wait on your Lord Jesus, that the one day he'll redeem you from, from all the hardships, the journey of life in this world, so you can be with him in your ultimate place of rest. Now let me pray.